Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Federal Reserve's steady efforts to cool the U.S. economy with higher interest rates appear to be working as new job growth has dramatically cooled. The U.S. economy is still growing and expected to avert a recession, but it's unclear what path the Fed is going to take next. More earnings reports, Bombardier, BWXT Technologies, Garmin, HII, Howmet, Leonardo, DRS, Parsons, Talas, and others uh, report earnings. And in what would be a tectonic move, Germany appears to be considering shifting its participation from the Franco-German-Spanish SCAF Future Fighter Program to the British-led Tempest Global Combat Air Program. Uh, That also includes Italy and Japan. uh, Korean industry continues to surge in making its global export mark, and we'll discuss that, uh, and Ukraine's increasingly dire outlook uh, as Russia's industrial base surges to field a vast array of ever deadlier weapons, including a new generation of faster and longer range precision strike drones. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafi of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in sunny Washington, D.C. Everybody, welcome back. And it wouldn't be Sunday unless we were all together. Thanks so much for making time for us. Yeah, it's great to be here, Vargo. Thanks. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vargo. Thanks for having us. Under sunny skies, as you say, Vargo. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. From from your outpost, exactly, you know, 10 blocks from where I'm sitting. So that's always reassuring. Uh, guys, uh, thanks uh, again, Ron. Uh, walk us through how uh, the Aerospace and Defense Group performed sort of more broadly against uh, the broader economy, right? Uh, the Fed saying we're going to forestall rate increases for the time being, even though those rate rises appear to be making uh, a mark, even though strategists, strategists complain that this is a ham-fisted way of doing it. They are going to control inflation and um, you know, flirting as close to a recession without causing it uh, is the way the Fed has decided to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at, at at the market this week, really the biggest story was the fall in the 10-year yield. You know, the 10-year yield in a week dropped about 50 basis points, right? So it went from roughly the 5% level, uh, 495 down to uh, about four and a half. And that, that's a huge move for those of you who don't follow bond markets. And, and that had a, a pretty pro- profound impact on the market. So the, the equities that we cover that are, are more sensitive, have higher betas, they call it, uh, you know, kind of more sensitive to market moves, that sort of stuff, uh, really, really kind of ripped. Uh, so if you look across the group, the S&P was up almost 6%, right? Just just under six. And for the S&P in a week, that's a big move, obviously. Uh, Boeing was up eight and a half. Raytheon was up four and a half. Lockheed Martin was up two and a quarter. General Dynamics was up two. Uh, now, when you start looking at the names that are kind of, considered more high beta, Spirit Aerosystems was up 18%, Embraer was up 9%, Bombardier was up 18%. And then if you move up the chain in, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of you know, the sensitivity to uh, that kind of thing, Palantir was up 25%. Uh, and Lillian, which trades under a buck in the US, was up 60% this week. Uh, and you saw a lot of the, the those those kind of things going on. Oil prices, again, were pretty steady. Again, I, I think that's kind of surprising given what's going on in the Middle East. But, um, you know, WTI crude was around 80, Brent crude was around 85. And then the VIX index, which we seem to talk about every week, it dropped from kind of that 22 level down to 15. Again, you know, that that measure of fear in the market that you, you've seen that pull back a lot. And when that typically happens, you'll, you'll see what happened this week. So you had earnings 
but really the big story I think was more macro and what was going on uh, with uh, yields in, in the government market. Um, uh, Sash, uh, give us your sense uh, over in Europe uh, and what the major drivers uh, there have been and how the group performed against those drivers. Yeah, I mean, Europe, actually, there was a big spread of performance. I mean, it was a good week overall. Uh, sector was up. Uh, yeah, aerospace and defense sector up, turn up, turn up, bit percent. But the civil stocks really outperformed, um, up 5%. Defense was up, up under a percent. Um, and it, so, you know, again, this actually ties in quite well with Ron's comments about uh, the VIX. You know, the market was risk on. The market is very, very happy uh, to be looking at potential for a you know better than expected cyclical upturn in uh civil aerospace so rolls royce is up nearly 11 percent that was largely on the back of um upgrades by other brokers there wasn't any you know massive particular news they had the um you know they haven't got any results or anything but investors are just getting more optimistic about rolls royce's uh ability to capture a wide body recovery particularly in uh asia um they've got a you know, hundreds of Rolls-powered A330s out in Asia, particularly in China. They haven't been flying very much in the last uh, three, three and a half years or so, and that's turning. And as that turns, Rolls-Royce's uh, flight hour receipts just, you know, go up very, very substantially indeed. Um, plus, the chief executive, Tufanegan and Bilic, is clearly talking a very, very good talk about uh, taking out costs without actually damaging the business too much. Um, so, invest, you know, 11% move in Rolls. Given that this has been the best performer in in uh, the sector all year, it's up one hundred and thirty seven percent now. Um, quite remarkable for for a week when we had no um, no real news flow. On the other side, um, you know, if you look at uh, what dragged the sector down, it was defence stocks. Um, the two big French defence stocks, uh, Thales and uh, Dassault Aviation. Um, we will talk about Thales results later, but those two are very very linked because Dassault has. A big strategic stake in Thales, but Kongsberg, uh, which has been a you know it's been an okay performer this year, but not actually particularly special. Um, that was off about eight um, percent after uh, probably a bit of profit taking after some pretty good results the, the week before. So we got a very very widespread of uh, performance, but most stocks, with the exception of those three defence stocks, were um, you know were, were up for the week, which is very very positive, and particularly the civil stocks. Um, dragged dragged up by rolls, but every simple stock was positive last week. Um, Richard, uh, let me uh, bring you in and uh, for, to give the audience kind of your uh, quick commercial aviation take. We're going to talk a lot about defense stories and earnings uh, in just a moment, but give your uh, give the audience a flavor for what some of the bigger uh, commercial headlines for the week were. Yeah, um, it just first to follow on to what Seth just said, you know, you've got this A350 shop visit uptick anticipated along with the uh, Asia wide body recovery. And I think that actually does look quite very much like the salvation of the company. You Actually, you could argue that B-52 re-engineering and the V-280 victory certainly did its part in saving the company. But that A350 XWB shop visit uptick that we're anticipating looks really strong. Uh, in other news, you know, you've got... Um, well, some rather negative comments out of uh, Ryanair's uh, O'Leary this week about the 737 MAX. Not a lot he can do. I mean, you've got these enormous backlogs for uh, Nairo bodies of all flavors. So the idea of canceling, as he has threatened to do, some of his outstanding MAX orders, probably not all that practical. He just have to get to the you know back of the end of the line for 320s. Um, so it's either you know you accept flight cancellations and schedule delays 
because you don't get enough maxes or the situation is even worse if you cancel. So, uh, you know, basically a bull market is Boeing's best friend right now. But it was, you know, it, it, when you have important customers like Michael O'Leary talking about cancellation, yet again, Boeing should really pay attention to that. In other news, you had uh, a bit of positive uh, developments for Embraer, the 175. Um, you know, they'd been sort of notoriously absent. Uh, by right. the, the, the tremendous uptick in orders recently for smaller jets, and they got an order for 19 E-175s for SkyWest. Certainly very welcome. Um, hopefully more to come, but of course, just, you know, despite all their talk of a pivot to China and all this other stuff, it, the regional market is North America. 60% always has been. Sure looks like it will be for a very long time, if not always. And then finally, force attention is moving towards Dubai, Dubai Air Show, uh, and, right. and Emirates and its wide-body order, which should be a really interesting development. And if it is a 787, first time they've gotten gone with a smaller plane like that, it's going to be a real comment on the importance of maintaining uh, fleet flexibility, smaller aircraft in the face of increased competition from other global carriers. Um, which is your commentary on, on the longevity of the A380, just to make this easy for the audience. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> The, the 380. I didn't want your stealth uh, criticism of the A380 <laughs> to not go acknowledged. Go Thank on. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's take this opportunity to move on. Uh, a word, a quick word from our sponsors before we move on. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Um, moving right along, Ron, um, and uh, we will have a. Um, an update uh, on the air show next week uh, on what we think are going to be bigger themes than that, aside aside from uh, this particular order and a, and a national carrier. Uh, Ron, give us your uh, sense on earnings takeaways. Um, a lot of companies reporting, some pre-reporting uh, like Spirit Air Systems, where all eyes have been on uh, the company's performance and its drive to sort of uh, regain its reputation uh, for quality and, and kind of uh, sort of stem some of the bleeding that is also impacting uh, Boeing's delivery figures. Walk us through uh, what we heard from what was a very disparate group. Yeah. So, I mean, there was, uh, I think, a couple of themes. Um, one, uh, let's start with Spirit, right? So you, you brought it up first. I mean, all eyes were on Spirit because it's, you know, it's had its issues, but its issues are actually very important to both Boeing and Airbus. Um, a week ago, maybe a little over a week ago, Spirit um, nailed down a memoranda of understanding with Boeing. Now that happened right after um, Pat Shanahan came in as the interim CEO. Uh, investors are looking for something like that with with Airbus. Would be interested in hearing what SAS has to say with that. Um, you know, is Airbus going to be willing to be as sort of generous as Boeing was? If you look at the agreement with Boeing, they give them some money up front, but then they take away some stuff in in, in the out years. Um, it was nice to hear you know Pat on the call. I mean, his comments, granted, he's only been in the seat like a week or two, were were, were guarded. Um, but, you know, just a real focus on, you know, execution, trying to get things right. Um, you know, they're not going to be doing M&A. They can't really do M&A, but they're not going to be doing M&A. The whole strategy of trying to diversify away from uh, Boeing and Airbus was, you know, particularly Boeing kind of didn't work. So they're really not going to be doing that. Um, and I think it was enough to you know make investors comfortable. Um, and hence, you saw the shares do well in a backdrop that was driving up that, that class of shares, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, and then kind of the other you know, issue for Spirit that they're going to have to address, and, and Boeing's been pretty clear about this, 
that, you know, Boeing isn't Spirit's long-term answer. And, you know, the reality is right now, the only program that makes money for Spirit is uh, the 737 and 737 is ultimately going to go away, right? I mean, I think we can all, that's not that controversial of a statement that when you're looking out to call it early 2030s, that's, you know, the ramp down of 7.3 and hopefully the ramp up of something else. Uh, and that's going to be an issue that Spirit has to confront. And then maybe one other thing on Spirit that was um, um, surprising on the uh, the Marine helicopter program, they're losing money. So we thought they were actually making money on all their defense programs, but they're not. Uh, so be that as it may. Then maybe on to Bombardier really quick. I know Richard will talk about that some. Uh, yeah, their, their backlog was good. Their order activity was good. You know, their profitability was good. And kind of everything was, was good there. Biggest takeaway from them and General Dynamics, who reported a week ago, that the business and market seems to be doing fine. And there was a lot of fear that it wouldn't be. And it, that was just sort of misplaced fear. And then, and then on the the mid cap defense names that reported, you know, BWX, you know, um, uh, uh, Leonardo DRS, uh, and, and then some of the the services companies, um, they all seem to be doing decent, right? Top line's good, margins okay, cash flows are right. I mean, that everybody seems to be kind of you know trucking right along. Um, you know, one of the big names that reported this week um, that tends to you know attract a lot of light is uh, Palantir, controversial name. Uh, but they, they had a good quarter, good, good quarter, decent growth, um, came in ahead of the expectations. And, and that's a stock that, you know, can fly all over the place. And that was one that was up almost 20% this week on, on those numbers. Um, Sash, uh, give us your uh, sense on uh, European uh, earnings. Telus uh, reported, obviously, we've got Airbus, Hensoldt, uh, Rheinmetall, and a number of the big names that are coming uh, next week or the weeks ahead. I think Leonardo falls in that group also. But walk us through. Uh, Talis, and any thoughts you have about you know U.S. earnings, news flow, and whatever else? Go ahead. Yeah, actually, look, what I'll do, I'll, I'll pick up on um, Ron's comment, comments on Spirit, first of all. I think this is, I mean, the Airbus report on uh, Wednesday. Uh, results aren't going to be that great because they didn't have a terribly impressive September. You know, September was pretty much flat on um, uh, flat on August and flat on July. And you know, I mean, they, you can't see a lot of signs of the of the, the great fabled ramp coming through at the moment. Um, and so, I, you know, we don't expect anything terribly exciting in in in, in these results. Um, the market has been concerned that. Uh, supply chain problems are, are actually going to mean that Airbus doesn't grow very much next year either. And I think that's the that's going to be one of the big areas of focus for, for these numbers. But, you know, Spirit in, in particular, from um, Airbus's point of view, the A220, which is the major program that uh, Spirit is involved in, although they're also on, on the A350, but the A220 loses money for Airbus. It's um, losing high triple digits. So, you know, six, 600, 700 million a, a year, which is you know, pretty much 10 million per aircraft at the moment. So they don't have a lot of reason to cut Spirit a great deal of slack, particularly since, um, you know, I mean, Boeing has clearly cut Spirit a lot of slack because 737 is existential for, for both Spirit and Boeing. But I don't think, you know, Airbus is as inclined to do a deal uh, with uh, Spirit. They may have to just to keep the A220 going, but the risk would be for Spirit that they then decide to dual source, uh, and particularly if they ever launch the A220-500, the, the stretched A220 that will ultimately replace the A319 Neo, um, you know, what if they go for another supplier uh, for the wings altogether? I think that's a real risk for uh, for Spirit, but I don't think that Airbus needs to, to uh, be as generous to Spirit as Boeing did. Um, and given the state of the A220 program, because there's no volume that's going to bail Airbus out on the A220 volume, so they've got to cut costs. They've been very clear. They think Spirit makes, you right. know, Spirit's prices are too high. 
um, as they are for almost every other supplier uh, on the program. Uh, you know, I think Airbus could well fight pretty tough on this one. So, you know, but that's going to be a really interesting uh, second question for Airbus on the uh, on the call on Wednesday evening. Um, but as far as European results this week, um, Tonis was about the only company uh, of note uh, that uh, reported this week. Um, they just, just report sales and orders uh, for, for the third quarter. They don't report full results, but you get a lot of insight, uh, both into momentum, or in this case, lack of it for a company like this, and also management, you know, he's managing feeling happy or happy or less happy. And in this case, um, very unusual for a defence company by the third quarter of this year not to be raising guidance. And Talis didn't raise guidance. And that tells you that, um, you know, they aren't seeing the, uh, frankly, the benefits of uh, the Ukraine war in the way that a lot of their peers further north, further east uh, are. Um, and that's pretty disappointing for a, de- uh, for a defence company. Uh, we wrote a note, we described Talis as suffering from asymmetric loss of thrust. And why is that? Because um, their defence business did fine. Their uh, avionics business, which is largely tied to Airbus, uh, did very, very well, growing in high, high double digits. But then on, you know, out on the left wing, uh, the DIS business, the um, digital ID and uh, security business, that was really pretty weak. And the space business, which is this joint venture with uh, Leonardo that Dallas controls, was also pretty weak. They're clearly not going to hit their previous guidance of two and a half billion of uh, two and a half billion euros of revenues uh, next year. So, you know, you've got two businesses doing well, two businesses doing significantly less well. What's the read across? Well, first of all, there's not a lot of momentum going into 2024 at the moment, but also the strategic one, which is Thales is spending three and a, three and a half billion uh, dollars on a, uh, a digital ID business called Imperva. Um, right. That doesn't look that great a deal at a time when they don't seem to be able to grow their existing uh, digital ID businesses. Uh, and I think that, you know, there's quite a lot of questions, actually, about whether the whole the strat- that that arm of the strategy is necessarily the, the best use of company funds. So, you know, Talis was one of the underperformers last week, one of the big underperformers. It dragged Dasso, uh, one of its controlling shareholders, down with it. Um, and it's very interesting to see if they can t- turn uh, turn things around through the fourth quarter and into 2024. Um, Richard, uh, your take on uh, earnings, uh, Bombardier, and any anything else that strikes your fancy? Yeah. Um, well, before I turn over to Bombardier, just a quick follow-on to uh, to uh, Sasha's comments about Talos. It, it's fascinating to me because, like uh, the other big French defense primes, they seem to have, as I've said before, a real problem scaling. And so you've got this, you know industry ecosystem that made it through the worst years of the Cold War with a remarkable array of capabilities fully intact, you know, ready to take on the world. And all of a sudden, this massive flood of demand, and there's no way they can scale up. So demand is there, you know, just over the past few days, you've got uh, reports, of course, of uh, the Saudis interested in 54 Rafales. Um, Does it matter? I mean, you've got 170, 180, and more on the way. Rafael order books last, you know, last last half of the year they delivered four, last year 14. You know, Talas is a big part of that. Um, they're having a really hard time scaling up. And that's what happens when you have a a national defense ecosystem. It's great for survival, but in terms of uh, offense, offensive capabilities to capture more business, really problematic. Uh Bombardier was very interesting. They did great, you know, not to not to cast aspersions, but normally when you have 
um, full order books as they do and all the other business jet primes do too. There's been an historical tendency to overbuild to, uh, as I think Ron memorably put it once, engineer their own bus cycle. And uh, not again, not to cast aspersions, but Bombardier has typically led the way with that, particularly the rather vicious 2015 overproduction cycle that uh, that hurt a lot of people. So this time they can't do that. And uh, guess what? They're reaping a reward uh, in terms of good margins, good results, stronger than expected uh, three quarter and good book to bill. Basically, the whether or not it is uh, their own strategy or whether it's imposed by you know, supply chain considerations, um, their restraint is resulting in some really very impressive numbers. And of course, they're building debt down too, which was one of the big concerns. So years ago, when of course they became the world's first pure play publicly traded business check prime, everyone had concerns. Uh, they appear to be de-risking that and uh, good for them. Uh, in, uh, indeed. This is uh, a great opportunity to talk about uh, what's uh, next for SCAF and for uh, GCAP. Uh, and Ron, we're going to skip over you and we're going to let uh, Stash uh, start us off with this. Um, citing uh, sources close to German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, uh, the Times of London is reporting that Germany is considering dropping out of the current SCAF program with France and Spain, seeing it as a potential white elephant and nakedly preferential uh, to French industry in favor of becoming the latest per, uh, partner in Br the British-led Tempest uh, or GCAP uh, program with Italy uh, and uh, Japan. Uh, this has been speculated for some time. We've discussed this many, many times on this program. Uh, indeed, Germany, uh, Britain, and Italy have cooperated successfully on two successful programs, the Panavia Tornado, uh, as well as the Eurofighter uh, program. Uh, France's contention is that Dassault and its industry are better suited for certain elements of SCAF and that somebody has to lead. Um, on the other hand, there was also some challenges of Germany uh, and Japan joining GCAP, uh, in part because uh, you know neither of those countries have a generous approach to arms uh, exports, which is one of the things that Britain is looking uh, to get out of this program. Sash, so sort of give us a sense on, on what this means, because in many respects, it's kind of going the way that we've projected, right? That SCAF becomes a Franco-French or a, you know Franco-Spanish program, and, and actually GCAP ends up having Germany in it. Uh, I disagree with the second bit of that, not necessarily the first bit. Um, I think that SCAF has looked to have a lot of tensions between France and Germany pretty much since it was set up. Dassault clearly intends to uh, lead uh, SCAF, you know, period, not shared lead, but lead SCAF. Um, and that has been a position that Airbus have, in Germany has been very, very uncomfortable with. And, you know, the German parliament has been extremely uncomfortable with for understandable reasons. Um, so that's always been a, a, an accident waiting to happen. Here's the problem. Um, I'm not sure that the, uh, certainly the industrial men, members of Tempest, GCAP, want Germany in. Yeah, everyone says, well, you know, you'll get lots of German volume. The Germans will buy 100, 150 aircraft. Doesn't everybody want that? They do, but not on the terms that Germany is uh, prepared to participate. And you're absolutely right. This comes down to exports. The Germans are currently vetoing uh, exports of Eurofighter to Saudi Arabia. Um, remember, we've already exported Eurofighters to Saudi Arabia, so it's a follow-on order. And the, the German government several years ago decided that this was uh, not an acceptable thing to do. Um, if Germany is going to veto exports, um, which actually breaks the, you know, the agreement of the Eurofighter Consortium and before that Tornado, 
which is that if the exports are, are acceptable to one of the partners, they have to be acceptable to the others. So Germany's prepared to do that with uh, Eurofighter. Um, why have Germany in Tempest? Uh, because they're going to be more trouble than, than, than they're worth. And I think the you know, it's very interesting, this time story, that it's come out of Germany, so, which suggests that Germany has got real problems, you know, real stresses uh, about SCAF. I would feel a lot more confident in the, the direction of that story if I'd seen it being well sourced out of the UK. I haven't heard anybody in the UK say, yeah, great, we really want the Germans in here. And do remember, I think listeners got to remember, both Italy and Japan have got a veto on this. And I can't see why they are going to want to share stuff with Germany if Germany then sort of messes it around. I and mean, you know, Germany is a very hard nation to do uh, defence collaboration with now, um, you know, when actually everybody's in a bit of a hurry because every, every contract over 25 million euros has to go through the Bundestag. The Bundestag budget cycle is very, very long indeed. So there's very little nimbleness in the German budget system. Right. And that feeds through to the way that, that industry works. So, um, you know, this is, frankly, this is a kite being flown. Uh, I don't see anybody else being very, very keen to, to, to play this particular game. Uh, Richard, uh, your sense on what this means uh, and whether, you know, I mean, even the US Air Force is gonna be building 150 NGATs, right? With a lot more collaborative combat aircraft. Is this developing a market for a plane that might be a little bit OB by the, you know, given the next iteration of what this market is going to look like without sounding too cynical, even even if it's critical to preserving, you know, whether it's British, Italian, German, French industrial capability for the future? Well, no, I mean, I, I think, at the at, you know, the whole story of combat aircraft being defined by generation is somewhat oversold. Um, you know, you had Eurofighter and now Raphael happily coexisting with the F-35. Yes, the technology on F-35 is superior. It's just that in terms of uh, security clearance, in terms of price point, in terms of industrial cooperation, whatever else, you know, that's the way it, it, it is. F-15 was way better than Tornado. Sorry. <laughs> it just was. Right. Uh, so this is this is just the way it's going to be. Uh, and and get might just be the ultimate combat aircraft we've seen so far. Very few people will be cleared for it. Very few people will be able to afford it, uh, especially with uh, Secretary Kendall's hundreds of millions of dollars price tag uh, quote. And uh, very few people will have an industrial uh, interest in it. So it doesn't matter what other people um, you know, are not going to be able to achieve in the world of combat aircraft design. Showing up, being able to build something good that gets the job done at a reasonable price point with industrial cooperation for other partners, that's the name of the game. They'll do it. And that's why, of course, you've got so many other emerging combat aircraft producers out there saying, yeah, we, we see this game and we would like to play it as well. Um, obviously, you're talking about the Turks and the Koreans who have fielded the KF-21. Yes. Uh, I just want to plug, give a plug to the F-4 Phantom, one of my favorite airplanes ever. F-4s that are thoroughly modernized with a new combat system are actually remarkably effective now, um, you know, it, it given uh, a newer generation of weaponry as well, right? So to your point, there could be generation, early fourth generation airplanes that with the right avionics and engine upgrades and a whole bunch of other things can actually serve re remarkably effectively, you know, even though that's a jet that what first flight was 56, 58, something like that, if memory serves. You know, and, and yeah, absolutely right. 
And not only that, but, you know, a dozen years ago, it became pretty clear that Lockheed Martin was determined to, uh, how to put this gently, strangle the F-16, you know, a, like a like an unwanted household pet or something. And, you know, get rid of it. You know, they moved it behind the main. I remember in Fort Worth, it was like moved to some place that used to like be the employee canteen or something. And they weren't content with that. So they moved it to South Carolina, which had never seen a combat aircraft production line or any kind of military or maybe even any kind of aviation line. I don't know. Greenville. And uh, <laughs> yeah, everyone was saying, I shouldn't say everyone, but I was saying a lot of my colleagues were saying, don't do this. There's another generation of F-16s that'll give you huge business opportunities. And we discover now that, yeah, we were right. And management there was a bit uh, a bit hasty in their decision to eliminate that, that uh, aircraft and indeed that offering at a very good price point. So as a consequence now, there are hundreds of F-16s coming down the pike, probably more to be signed. Um, you know, more a legend than a plane. And in uh, over half a century, uh, this is this is what the combat aircraft market looks like. It's not a question of generational obsolescence. It's a question of value for money and combat effectiveness. Uh, in, indeed. Uh, Ron, I'm going to turn to you uh, in just a second, but I uh, want to remind our audience to check out our weekly award-winning podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marina, GE Aerospace Company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space on our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Um, Ron, uh, as uh, as the airplaneist of airplane guys on this program, um, what, what's your sense of sort of the future of the market, the role of fourth generation coexisting with, you know, NGAD and, and future generation aircraft, especially as, you know, if, if these are going to be platforms that are going to be kind of hanging back and controlling a lot of advanced aircraft that can penetrate forward to do a whole bunch of things, whether ISR or anything else, are we... Are folks thinking about the right way of what the future of this market actually looks like? Putting aside the preservation of right aeronautical engineering design and other skills. Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways to think about it, right? I mean, you're going to need aircraft of multiple capabilities, right? You just can't have the silver bullet, right? That never that never works. Um, and maybe let me pull in a, a thought that's a little disparate from this, but sort of makes sense. If you look at you know, what's going on uh, with the war in the Middle East and in the Ukraine, there's probably one of the, you know, the criticisms about U.S. strategy might have been we bought too many guns and not enough bullets. And and, and I think when you think about um, air power and the assets that you have, if you go too much on the high end and you don't have the stuff in the middle, that's a problem, right? So there's going to be, to Richard's comment, there's going to be some sort of balance between kind of fourth gen, fifth gen, and sixth gen, right? So I think that's how it's going to have to play out. And what complicates all this and makes, if you were a military strategist today, probably pretty fascinating work, the CCAs, the, you know, the, the collaborative right. combat um, aircraft. So you, you throw in the manned stuff, but then on top of that unmanned, how the unmanned is going to work with the manned, how everything's going to kind of fly together. And you have a really interesting, um, you know, optimization problem in the battle space with all that um but you have all kinds of degrees of freedom that you didn't have 50 years ago when um you know kind of maybe you know things like the f-15 the f-16 were were conceived so you know uh, i don't know if this answers the question but i think right. there's a lot of options and a lot of things to think about 
Um, uh, it, let me uh, take you to a little bit of reporting that we did. Uh, we pride ourselves on this program that we've uh, managed to break some NCAD uh, news. Ron, you know, you were the one who confirmed that there were uh, three uh, demonstrator aircraft that were uh, built. And, uh, you know, it was J.J. Gertler from the Air Power podcast who learned that two of them uh, ended up being downselected. We later learned that uh, those two appear to be the Boeing airplane and the Lockheed Martin airplane. Uh, and uh, on the Air Power podcast last week, you know, I, I discussed something that, that we had discussed. It, it looks like what Lockheed uh, Lockheed's proposal is an evolutionary one. Uh, it is, you know, sort of F-22 and F, certainly F-35 DNA, a bigger airplane. Um, it, it, you know, you, you can now understand why the U.S. Air Force is so interested in that, uh, you know, Block 3, uh, the TR-3 and the Block 4 version of the uh, uh, combat system, right? That ends up working well. For an NGAD, you know, if you look at all the pieces, the Air Force has a lot of the pieces in its bin in order to be able to deliver and field uh, a next generation air dominance aircraft quickly. Um, you know, reported, uh, you know, Ted, Ted Colbert had said, hey, don't count us out. And it, you know, you hear uh, glimmers that, you know, the, the Boeing aircraft might be a, a fresher sheet, uh, a fresher approach, even if it's got some F 15 DNA in it. Uh, and, you know, Dave Deptula of the Mitchell Institute has said, you know, this doesn't have to be the biggest and best dogfighting aircraft. It's got to be something that has the capability, connectivity, enough stealthiness and capability to operate and to control these CCAs uh, forward. Um, you know, ultimately, Ron, um, what's the trick to sort of achieving this? Because there are also performance questions the Air Force has on both of these teams, right? The Block 3 has taken a long time to develop. Uh, the TR3, uh, the Tech Refresh 3, has taken a long time to develop. You know, there've been teething problems. And on the other hand, you know, Boeing has had challenges, everything from tanker to trainer to Air Force One uh, and 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 you name it. Um, what's what, what's your thinking about what this additional information tells us uh, at all, even if it's just an incremental bit of information? Yeah, I mean, you would, you would imagine you know, if you were at Lockheed, right? And I, I don't know this for a fact, right? I'm just saying if you were at Lockheed, of course, this next airplane would have a strong heritage to its two predecessors for a number of reasons. But one, primarily, you have a bunch of engineers who worked on both of those programs, far right. more so on F-35 than F-22. But you have a active, hot engineering core that's been working on this stuff. So you, you take those engineers and you mix them with some of the folks out in Skunk Works, and you'll, you'll come up with something that, you know, probably has some F-35-isms in it, improved, different. When you're Boeing, you're starting with effectively either a clean sheet of paper or an F-15. And, you know, the F-15 has a, has a you know fantastic airplane, love the machine, worked on it when I was at McDonnell Douglas. But yeah, this is an old machine. It's been around for a long time. Um, you have the EX version, which has, you know, some enhancements and upgrades, but, you know, it's, it's still a, an older generation fighter. You probably have a little bit of F-15 in it, but the reality is pretty much anybody who worked on F-15 at this point is retired or, or long gone. So you're, you're starting with kind of a clean a clean sheet, a clean cadre of engineers. And that ultimately is going to be a much harder task, right? Because you're, you're pulling together that whole organization and trying to pull together an aircraft and trying to pull together a supply chain where one would think Lockheed would just have a leg up on it because they already have momentum along a lot of those those vectors and if you're at the air force it's all right do you want to just do something new um, with a lot of risk or do you want to try to do something that's 
I don't want to, you know, downgrade it by saying iterative, but but something that has a lot of the framework support infrastructure, I mean, support, I mean, design and so on and so forth in place that you can right. really move forward. I mean, I mean, the one the one thing, and uh, Richard, I'm going to come to you uh, in just a second, right? I mean, an interesting element of this is that Secretary Campbell and Assistant Secretary Hunter have both talked about the importance of sustainability, right? So if you're lucky, you're playing on the fact that there will be thousands of F-35s that will be out there um, to, to you know, help you with the sustainability part of the equation, right? Where your NGAD and your F-35 have a lot of commonality, even though the Air Force uh, certainly could specify some of those, uh, some of those elements on both yep. of these jets. You could also see an industrial base argument, right? Where, hey, look, we don't want to give all of our programs, right? F-22, F-35, you know, and NGAD to, to one uh, company. Uh, and, and certainly that's, you know, but, one, but I think, one, I think one the way key, of looking at it. The key, Vago, and I think this is important. And I do believe this was a factor on the, you know, granted Army, not the Air Force, and the Florida decision. How much of an open architecture will the aircraft have? How much of the support and and so on and so forth, we'll have to go through the Lockheed team or will it be more right. open? And my understanding is with the Textron Flora, that that was a much more open architecture. It was and, completely open is, is right. what I've been told. Right. And and beyond the fact that, you know, you different aerodynamic characteristics and maybe one worked a heck of a lot better than the other, for, put all that aside, Right. that you had an open architecture, which you I think one could argue from a long-term logistics and support cost point of view and maybe just sort of headache point of view is is really what you want so can you imagine a world where boeing's offering an open architecture and lockheed's not that might have some sway uh it, it, although you know the pentagon has also shown that it's very very good at continuing the impression of competition even if it didn't exist right on f-35 on JSF, they knew early on the Boeing aircraft was never going to get there, but they kept the competition going to keep pressure on Lockheed. So you could also see this as building up, you know, the, there could be legitimate reasons to build Boeing up. There could also be somewhat less legitimate reasons to build Boeing up, right? You want Lockheed to think that, uh, you know, it's 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 got to do its math uh, and and it's uh, and it's uh, certainly it's it's homework. Uh, Richard, you know, want to bring you in uh, on this and, and sort of your, you know, get your sense on it, even though, you know, we've been talking for a long time that whatever NGAD is, is, is going to have a lot of F-35 DNA in it, even if it's a bigger airplane, if you're, if you're yeah. going to execute it quickly. Right. And, and one of the things the Air Force is on is a very aggressive timeline, even if FAXX comes uh, a little bit, a little bit sooner. Yeah. You know, it gets back to the joke that we've been telling for probably well over a decade that the F-22 is an amazing air vehicle in search of a good mission equipment package. And the F-35 is an amazing air mission equipment package in search of a good air vehicle. You somehow match the two <laughs> concepts together. You get something great. Maybe that's, you know, and it, you could also do a sort of a read through on um, LRSB and, and the B-21. Maybe, you know, we're going sort of Back to the future, or something like that. That the idea is to look at the that I think you put it best the toolkit that the Air Force has in terms of off the shelf capabilities, and you come up with something that meets your needs. Looking at stuff you've uh, you've kind of done before, or elaborate on stuff you've done before. And again, the B twenty one kind of exemplifies that as a sort of you know super refined, stripped down, but greatly improved B two concept. Uh, 
or maybe you do want to break with path dependency and go with, if indeed Boeing has something that's completely free of legacy DNA, maybe there's something there. I don't know. This is fascinating. Either way, kudos to you for, you know, the stories you've broken on this. I, I you know, I, it's going to be an amazing next year in terms of news flow on this. Uh, it, it is indeed, especially since FAXX is going to be sooner. And, uh, you know, a lot of the speculation is that, you know, Northrop, uh, you know, a number of people have sort of said like, hey, the, the Northrop proposal, uh, you know, I just passed that along. I'm not endorsing one over another. It's just interesting how many people sort of mentioned that, you know, Northrop that uh, appears not to be part of it or, or, you know, had said that they won't pursue that in order to pursue FAXX. It, it looks like, you know, that's an that's one of the competitors uh, that comes up often. Sash, I want to get your quick uh, sense, uh, you know, being on the other side of the Atlantic and watching this, you know, what do you what do you take away from it? I've got honestly, I've got nothing to add on uh, NGAD at all. But Richard, um, you know, F-15 may have been a better fighter. It certainly was not a better bomber than Tornado. I can't let you get away with that one. Uh, F-15, Strike, strike Eagle. 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 I, I would put my money on a Strike Eagle every day of the week, Sash, as fine, much as fine. I'm wait, 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 Tornado. Wait, waste your money, Fargo. <laughs> let us let us as gentlemen agree to disagree i'll buy you a drink over over this one uh when next we see each other hopefully soon uh just uh really uh quickly um i uh just uh, one of the other things is my understanding is uh and and ron let me get your sense on this uh right i mean to to say that skunk works has classified programs is a little bit like saying that you know uh, a dog bites man i don't think that's particularly newsworthy uh we know that there was a huge uh, array of uh, highly classified programs that are ongoing. Uh, it looks like the U-2 is going to be replaced by the RQ-180 by Northrop Grumman. Uh, and there was some question about what Lockheed is doing in terms of a next generation capability. Uh, there was some speculation that the program was so ambitious that it was canceled and then heard that the program was not canceled. It was it was rescoped. Uh, any sense on how that's being reflected in Lockheed's earnings at this point, given that you know there, there were a couple of line items in there where it's not entirely clear what it is they're doing, even though they're doing something or things. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not much of a, a discussion in the investor community, and clearly it doesn't come up on, on earnings calls. Um, if you look at Lockheed and you compare it to some of the other companies in terms of top-line growth, um, theirs was less, less, that's a way to reframe it. Um, they had growth, but less growth. Um, so, you know, how much of it's in there, it's hard to say. Is it something that investors are really focused on right now? They're not really. Uh, interesting. Uh, Richard, is there anything uh, you want to add? Because I want to ask uh, Sash a, uh, a a war question before we part. Well, um, no, I mean, just that don't forget, you know, we've had for many years this talk of uh, these aren't platforms, they're complexes, particularly LRSB. You know, it's not just LRSB, there's, you know, the weapon part, the, op, you know, the, right. the reconnaissance part. And yet it, nothing ever seems to come out <laughs> in terms of other right. air vehicles. So there's obviously stuff out there. It's going to be really interesting to watch. Uh, okay, uh, we've got uh, a couple of minutes uh, left. Actually, let me change order really quick. Uh, Ron, uh, talk to us. Uh, you initiated Korean uh, coverage. You had a great note uh, on Korean uh, industry making enormous inroads. We've been talking about Korean industry, uh, and Sash has become our Korea expert here over the last uh, couple of years, uh, talking about Hanwha's growth and Korean aerospace uh, growth. Uh, give us give us your sense uh, on what the outlook is for Korea Inc. Yeah, so um, uh, thanks for asking, Vago. And we were, I was the junior guy on this. Uh, KJ Huang, our uh, analyst, industrial analyst in uh, 
in Korea was the, was the lead. But the takeaway here is it, they've recognized, you know, Korea defense as a new export megatrend uh, for Korea. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the real drivers there are stuff that, you know, we, we talk about a lot, you know, global rearmament, you know, particularly in the region, inventory shortages, um, at, you know, in, in the U.S. and NATO, uh, the weapons modernization trends, you know, some other, you know, sanctioned arms exports from different regions of the world. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're projecting exports uh, to, to grow for Korea as an important part of uh, their, their industrial sector. Um, and, and, and if you look at, you know, before kind of maybe that 2022 range, um, Korea's orders wins were mainly driven by you know, kind of efficient order fulfillment, you know, battlefield experience, price traction. But the changes now are, you know, the Korea's, the Korean producers, the Korean primes, if you will, are doing more overseas production. They're working towards proving interchangeability with uh, weapon systems in the U.S. and Europe, uh, you know, NATO compatible tanks, howitzers, trainers, that kind of thing. Um, so this is a, a new area of focus uh, for, for the bank. Uh, and we'll be helping out with uh, the Korean coverage. Uh, indeed, and it's going to be terrific to get some Asian coverage uh, in this program. Some of our uh, listeners, ardent listeners, have been calling for it, so I'm glad uh, we're making progress on that front. Uh, Sash, we've got about a minute left. I wanted to uh, reach out to you. Sort of, It's been a while since we've talked about where uh, Ukraine is. Uh, a little bit of back and forth within the Ukrainian uh, leadership. Um, right, Vladimir Zelensky sort of chiding his chief of defense staff uh, for uh, having told the economist, look, absent massive breakthroughs, we're going to be looking at a stalemate, uh, saying that comments like that help uh, the Russians. What does your nuanced military man's eye tell you about what we're seeing? Because the, the Russians are fielding capability that are outsticking the Ukrainians, unfortunately, and we are approaching the bottom of the barrel, as we've been discussing on this program, in terms of the assistance that the United States and its allies and partners are going to give. Um, sort of give give us your sense on sort of a snapshot or, or what you thought was interesting that jumped out at you. Yeah. Okay. Look, I mean, first of all, on the war, um, uh, the Ukrainian offensives and its offensives you know there are there are battles in the north in the in the northeast and the south are gaining ground in you know i mean very very slowly indeed and at huge cost um and that's uh that's a very very difficult way to fight to, to fight a war the you know the defense the russian defenses are generally uh you know doing what defenses do which is stopping the ukrainians they're using very very good layered defenses and it's it's extremely hard to uh, you know, to penetrate that sort of defence with anything like conventional um, uh, for, uh, force structures, you know, the, the the rule of the rule of thumb, and it's a really lousy rule of thumb, frankly, has always been that in an attack you need to outnumber your opponents three to one. Um, I don't think that's actually ever been uh, been demonstrated terribly well. I think it's three to one if you have a huge amount of air power as well. Well, you know, um, the Ukrainians don't have air power, uh, so. Uh, three to one superiority, even if they can achieve that, um, is not enough to uh, penetrate through multiple lines of, of Russian defences at the moment. I mean, I'm interested. You know, Russian industry is clearly spooling up uh, and is, you know, will clearly produce stuff. Although Russian, you know, a lot of the equipment the Russians have, pro have produced, uh, in particular in, in terms of armour and so forth, has not, and but also air defence missiles, has not turned out to be as effective as we thought it would be. Um, you know, there's much less of, a, of an anti-access aerial denial 
blob all over the Ukraine than we feared when the Russians moved S-300 and S-400 into range. For example, Russian armored vehicles have proved to be so-so. I think the the issue, though, yeah, we're looking at at the bottom of the barrel in terms of quite a lot of heavy conventional munitions, artillery in particular, let's be honest. Artillery munitions were very, very light on. But, I mean, we have only ourselves to blame if we don't supply the Ukrainians with combat aircraft, which we seem to find it taking an incredibly long time to do. Um, And I think what's going to be fascinating in the next uh, couple of quarters is whether Europe realises that um, uh, we have got to up the ante quite dramatically because ultimately Ukraine is fighting a war on our behalf. Not, you know, um, we're, we're not sort of innocent bystanders. They they're shedding their blood for us. And if that's the if that's the deal, then we've probably got to transfer a lot more in terms of combat aircraft and the missiles that go with them and the munitions that go with them than we've even considered doing so far. Um, Sweden is clearly considering uh, sending Griff. Uh, to Ukraine, probably about the you know the sort of capability of aircraft that the Ukrainians could absorb pretty quickly. I know that I've certainly talked to some people at Saab who reckon that that you know they could train Ukrainians to to fly Ukrainian pilots to fly Gripen within weeks and to fight them in a, in a few weeks more. You know, it's not a it's not complex in that regard. And I think this, the time taken to train the Ukrainians on F-16s is lamentable. Um, uh, but I, you know, I, th- I think you know, for the West, we're, get- we're going to have to up the ante because otherwise, if Ukraine loses, we lose. Uh, and uh, certainly uh, a lot more uh, to discuss on that front. General uh, uh, Zaluzhny's point in the Economist article was we could have used those combat aircraft before Russian air defenses got as good as they did. Right. It's, it's not that he's not thankful. It's just that fielding this capability and getting this capability into the hands of Ukrainians has lagged and they didn't get what they needed when they needed it when they needed it to launch their offensives, when they needed it to do what they needed to do, as opposed to ending up here where the Russians really are surging uh, their capacities uh, and fielding new systems. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. A little bit longer discussion than we wanted to have, but covered a lot of ground. Thanks so very much. Hope you guys have a terrific uh, weekend, a terrific week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. As always, Vargas. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you, Vargas. Yeah, enjoyed it a lot, Vargas. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us as well. And a very special thanks to Bell and all of our sponsors for their generous support that makes this program possible every day. We look forward to seeing you again tomorrow on our Look Ahead program. Until then, uh, have a great day and we'll see you again tomorrow.